From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. In the early 2000s in Western Sydney, a gang war was running between largely Lebanese families. The response at the time was a significant moment in racialized policing. In the middle of this story is one man, Ramsey Awad, who's in prison for life on the basis of testimony that's being criticised as being financially induced. This is part one of a two-part episode. Reporting in this episode is by Mahmoud Fazal. Mahmoud, how did you come to know Ramsey Awad and tell his story? I actually met the brother of Ramsey's co-accused in Brisbane. Um, He told me the story of three men in their 20s being convicted to life imprisonment. And we were talking about what life imprisonment meant in Australia. And he, he said, no, no, it's life as in life without parole. Like, they throw away the key. Mahmoud Fazal wrote about this case for the monthly magazine. In our first phone conversation, my first impressions were of Ramsey were of kind of a young kid. This call is originating from the Long Bay Metropolitan Special Program Centre. Hello, welcome, Ramsey. How are you? Good, my How are you? Yeah, good. Is it is it all right for you to call it this time? Yeah. Oh, Matt. And uh... he sounded like he was still in his early twenties, but he's older than me, and he's mid thirties now. So I was quite surprised. And he seemed like he'd come to terms with what his life has now become. I don't want to affect me too much, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you were young too. Yeah, I was. I was young. I just took it like a joke at the time. Probably hit me later on, I got a little bit older. We were speaking a lot about the things we took for granted as kids, running amok on the streets. In the same way, all young Muslim men in the early 2000s were trying to make sense of the world outside their home, outside their communities. We were, in many ways, trying to find our place, trying to fit in. If we can speak yeah, no, no, I'll call you, I'll call you, I'll call you every day in this time. Oh, thank you, Yeah, yeah. So the more I read about uh, Ramsey's story, I couldn't help but feel as though our lives were only a few bad decisions apart. My parents moved to Victoria to flee the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Ramsey's parents moved to New South Wales to flee the Lebanese Civil War. We were both from the outer suburbs, involved in crime... There were shootings. I lost several friends in their 20s to gun violence. So you felt, I guess, this closeness with Ramsey because of the the similarities in your experiences. And you've been writing to Ramsey and he's been writing to you. Uh, Can you tell me a bit about what's in those letters? Do you want me to read something out? That'd be great, yeah. And this, this was from the first letter he ever wrote to me. He writes, The first day of my sentence, I remember walking past the surrounding prison cells. All were numbered, ranging from 10 to 20 years. When I finally arrived at my cell, my door was not marked with any numbers or years. A life sentence, never to be released. A death sentence.
Mahmood, let's go back to the beginning of all of this. Can you tell me about what was happening with crime in, in Western Sydney in Punchbowl in the early 2000s? Sure. I think it's best to set the scene a bit first. In the year 2000, the SCAF rape trials took place. They were highly publicised, largely as a result of deliberate police leaks. Alan Jones described the attacks as Muslim rapes of Australian women, before adding that they were the first signs of an Islamic hatred towards the community that welcomed them. Well, I tell you what kind of grubs this lot were. This lot were Middle Eastern grubs. There we go. I mean, not allowed to say it, but I'm saying it. The New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions said ethnicity was a motivating factor, even though the judge presiding in the first trial stressed that she'd seen no evidence of any racial element in these crimes. It's hard to believe that young men brought up in modern Australia could behave in such a fashion, like wild animals. She suffered every indignity. And then you add to that the Tampa affair. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. September 11, the Bali bombings. And suddenly we're all supposed to be surprised in the wake of these events when the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission finds that two-thirds of Muslim and Arab Australians are saying they've experienced racism and racial vilification. So this was a time when Middle Eastern crime in Sydney's western suburbs really fueled the fears of the Australian imagination. The violence has again erupted on the streets of Punchbowl in Sydney's southwest, with criminal gangs targeting police. Uh, the Telopia Street Boys were central to this campaign. They were running drugs, intercepting police radio networks, launching death threats towards patrolling officers and issuing bomb threats to the Bankstown police station. On one occasion there, we had the Lakemba police station, the victim of a uh, drive-by shooting. So what the New South Wales police did was that they decided to introduce a new police tactic called zero-tolerance policing. The strategy involved a highly visible police presence, enforcing every facet of the law. And what kind of effect did that have? Well, I think the footage of the police raids on Telopia Street really s- says it all. Police swept into the notorious Punchbowl Street at dawn. Within minutes, more than 200 officers were in place, two blocks entirely surrounded. They look like something out of a military parade. You've got over 200 police officers sent to raid the street on three separate occasions. There were helicopters and officers literally marching up and down a street that's not even a kilometre long. Over a thousand arrests with massive drug and firearm halls closing down business for good. It was total theatre. Once the New South Wales Police had dismantled the Tilopia Street Boys, there was a vacuum in that kind of drug operation. And according to police documents, Adnan Eddie Darwish stepped in to fill that void. Okay, so there was this void created in the drug market. Can you tell me more about what happened next? So at the time, there were two major families in control of the drug runs throughout Western Sydney the Darwishes and the Razaks. Although when we refer to the Darwish and Razak families, we should stress that obviously not everyone in the family was a criminal. It was just a banner representing the leaders of each gang. Adnan Eddie Darwish 
was the head of the Darwish family. His right-hand man, a key figure in this story, is Khalid Crazy Talib. These two families, the Darwishes and the Razaks, were vying for control of the streets, but they were held in an uneasy peace because Eddie Darwish's sister, Khadija, was married to Ali Abdul Razak. And Ramsey, who I've been speaking to, was also married to the sister of a Razak associate. So this is a tight-knit, very small world of outcasts on the margins of a minority. And so this uneasy peace between the Darwishes and Razaks, how long did that hold for? Basically until marriages broke down and both sides started ripping off drug runners that worked for the opposing syndicate. Tensions started to really break out in mid-2003 and there were a series of tit-for-tat attacks escalating in violence. The tipping point was the shooting of Khalid Crazy Talib, who was Adnan Darwish's right-hand man, and he was kneecapped in Bankstown. As a response to that, the shootings really started escalating in scale. We're talking hundreds of shots from semi-automatic assault rifles in the suburbs. This culminates in the murder of Ali Abdul Razak, who was shot and killed as he sat in his car after his Friday prayers near the Lakemba Mosque. Word in the western suburbs quickly began to circulate that Eddie Darwish was responsible for the murder. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Mahmood, we're talking about this power struggle between two families in Western Sydney. Eddie Darwish, who was the head of one family, was accused of killing a senior figure in the, in the Razak family. What happened after that? There were a series of drive-by shootings and retaliation. Ramsey Awad's house was shot up. On the same night, Khalid Talib's sister's home was also peppered with bullets. Eddie Darwish orchestrated a plan to get even and essentially end the war. According to court documents, sources and police statements, Eddie Darwish called the shots and Khalid Crazy Talib organised the ammunition. They're not using simply just pistols and knives. We're talking about high-powered weaponry, high-powered military rifles, to the extent they even considered using rocket launchers. So we've gone an extra level up. They had a rocket launcher, semi-automatic assault rifles and a number of automatic handguns. Now, according to Talib's testimony... He was excused from joining the actual shooting because he hadn't fully recovered from his own kneecapping. Everyone else within the syndicate, Ramsey, Nassim El-Zayed and Abbas Osman, were expected to be involved. The planning for the murder at Lawford Street, Greenacre, was fairly meticulous. Specific weapons were handed to individuals. Uh, Some had favourite weapons. The Darwish crew, without Talib allegedly drove to a house on Lawford Street where some of the Razak gang were hiding out. It was 2.45am. 
the 14th of October, 2003, the dead of the night. At 3am, 55 shots tore through the front wall of the Lawford Street home. Just total indiscriminate shooting. They had no sight of the intended uh, victims or the targets. Ziad Razak died after being showered in a hail of bullets. Ambulance officers try in vain to save 24-year-old Ziad Razak, shot in the head and legs when the barrage of bullets ripped through this fibro house in Lawford Street. Mervat Nemra, whose husband had offered their home to the Razaks, suffered a gunshot wound to the neck and died in his arms. Police have little doubt who was responsible. An ongoing feud between two families that has resulted in the last few weeks with several shootings, stabbings and other serious violent crimes. And so this is what's known as, as the Lawford Street shootings? Yes. You're describing multiple shootings, and there are others that we also haven't talked about. What was the broader reaction at the time to what was happening in Western Sydney? Well, it starts to get really political. There's a sustained demonisation of Lebanese people in the press. Let me just get to cut to the chase here in terms of the media coverage and the way politicians are playing this. Is the problem Middle Eastern gangs in your view? Is that, is that the way you see it as a politician? Oh, I see it as a... And uh, the daily tabloids made the public feel like the Lebanese civil war was at their doorstep. And the Middle Eastern criminal is a very irrational criminal. Nothing seems to make too much sense when they have a fight. You know, they would fight and kill over issues normal people wouldn't even be concerned about. The front page of the Daily Telegraph the day after the shootings, read, How dare you do this to our city? In the Sydney Morning Herald, then New South Wales Premier Bob Carr told reporters that those responsible should ship out of Australia before issuing a blunt warning that we're not going to see our civilization dragged back to medieval standards of revenge cycles. OK, and what was the police response? Well... Detective Bob Inkster was told to put together a task force to address violent crime in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. His briefing was followed by a highly protected report in which a recommendation was made to establish a dedicated investigative response to the quote-unquote Middle Eastern organised crime problem. They set up Task Force Gain, which later led to the formation of the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad. At first, the Miox Squad had the logo of a wood wasp, the natural enemy of the cedar tree, a symbol from the Lebanese flag. After a complaint, they changed it to a mullet, a popular haircut among young Middle Easterners in Sydney's western suburbs, being snipped off with a pair of scissors. Huh. Yeah, it was a very strange decision on their part. Former Assistant Police Commissioner Ken Mackay, known within the force as Slasher, was instrumental in setting up the squad. So, Ken, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm a retired Assistant Commissioner of Police. Um, I had the majority of my career in organised crime. Uh, On crime in the western suburbs, he told me their behaviour goes way back to old tribalism. There's no sense that at any attempt of integration into the norms of our society, the traditional norms... When I asked him to address the sociological reasons someone may turn to crime, Mackay said... Sociological reasons... Oh, well, it's someone else's fault, you mean? You know, you just can't cop that any longer. He calls it the ace of race. They're not a group of downtrodden new arrivals into the country. They're born here, 
they have all the opportunity. Um, they have all the welfare money can be keep thrown at them. It's just, it's just their way of thinking, and I think it goes way back. So while this police response was underway, what was going on with the Darwishes after that Lawford Street shooting? So a few days after the Lawford Street shooting, Eddie Darwish and Talib met in a park. Uh, in the western suburbs, gangsters would meet in parks to sort out their differences and they'd often end in a fight or a shooting. Uh, at the time, Eddie suspected Talib of working with police and wearing a wire. Talib, knowing that he was being pressed and um, interrogated, admitted to committing all the crimes um, just to get Eddie off his back. But just as he was doing that, the police drove by and Eddie asked them all to disperse and go back to his place. And the next day, Talib fled to Melbourne and then booked a flight to Beirut. About a month later, the police arrested Eddie Darwish. A week after that, Ramsey, the man I've been speaking with in prison, was also arrested. And did the shooting stop? No, they didn't. The Razaks shot Eddie Darwish's younger brother, and nine years later, Eddie's older brother Abdul was murdered in broad daylight at a petrol station. I think um, once a life is lost, it's very difficult to find peace because the meaning of justice is no longer rational, it's personal. But I think this story is interesting for that reason because it forces us to ask why the New South Wales government took these crimes so personally. Some tape in this episode has been drawn from the podcast No Gangsters in Paradise from Audible Australia. In tomorrow's episode, the inducements and indemnities police used when building their case. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news, the Victorian government has confirmed that students from prep to year 10 in Melbourne will return to remote learning from July 20 until the end of the six-week lockdown. There are currently 1,484 recorded active cases of coronavirus in Victoria, 57 of those people are in hospital, including 16 people in intensive care. Meanwhile, the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has said that New South Wales is on high alert and the next two to three weeks are absolutely critical for the state. The Premier has also announced that people flying into New South Wales from overseas will have to pay $3,000 for their two-week stint in hotel quarantine as of midnight on the 18th of July. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.